Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. Joining me for part two of the animated mixtapes is returning guest, Jeremy Fretkin. Welcome back. You know, Anthony, I almost wanted to introduce myself as your pal, Jeremy Fretkin, for the sake of this episode. You know, I was like, was it too much? I kind of threw it out there anyway, but Anthony, I'm so excited, as you can tell, to not only be here, but to talk today about one of my favorite animated shows of all time and what I personally believe to be one of the greatest supporting casts in all of comic books and their adaptive media. Couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, this is our Metropolis episode. So again, we are taking this mixtape approach. Last time we dealt with Krypton, Brainiac, the Phantom Zone villains. This time, like I said, we are focusing on Metropolis and the supporting cast. And just to let people know specifically which episodes we will be covering uh, for this installment, we will be talking about The Last Son of Krypton Part 3, so that's the conclusion of that three-part series premiere, A Little Piece of Home, which introduced Kryptonite to the series, The Way of All Flesh, where Lex creates Metallo, My Girl, where we meet an adult Lana Lang on the arm of Lex Luthor, of all people. Gasp. Yeah. Brave New Metropolis, where Lois finds herself in an alternate reality where Superman has become an authoritarian figure. Uh, a bit of a forerunner to uh, Injustice. I think we'll have an interesting chat on that front. We're like this, my friend. As always, we're like this. That's right. Target, uh, where Lois Lane is uh, targeted by a mystery assailant. The late Mr. Kent, which is one of my very favorite episodes of the entire series. And that's another one I think we'll have a lot to talk about. And bringing this full circle to what you were just saying a moment ago, Superman's Pal, uh, the Jimmy Olsen spotlight episode from uh, towards the end of the run. So that's what we'll be talking about for volume two of the animated mixtapes. So it's, it's exciting run of episodes. This has been a, uh, I feel like I'm going to say at the start of every episode that we do, but this has been such an enjoyable uh, collection and mixtape of episodes. Also, and I, I don't want to sound like a broken record with this, but I really feel like this way of rewatching, there's a lot to be said for it. Because just in this run of episodes alone, we meet Detective Bowman, the corrupt police officer, yes. In, yes. in the Target episode. And then, of course, he comes back and plays a big role in The Late Mr. Kent. Again, we meet adult Lana Lang in My Girl, and then she yep. proves to be very clutch uh, in The Late Mr. Kent in allowing yes. Clark to return to the land of the living. So, What a nice nice surprise that was. Pretty cool. Yeah. So it's like, you know, if you were just watching or rewatching the animated series, you know, in its original order, it's fine. I think, you know, you would, you would still get the ultimate effect, but uh, it really packs more of a punch uh, watching it this way. Did you find that as well? Oh, absolutely. It's like you're watching a um, a condensed, like hyper-focused version of these themes and these characters. So instead of having, and uh, again, the Timverse is just the, the masters, the absolute masters of animated long-form storytelling, but there's so much that happens in between. We're kind of just putting those links together, like you just said, with Lana Lang, with Detective Bowman. You know, we're, we're seeing all these characters pop up again and seeing their arcs unfold and how they affect Metropolis and Superman himself. Yes. Yeah, 100%. Now, you know, just like last time, we started with some, you know, some big picture ideas about the series. Um, there were a couple of things we didn't talk about last time that I, I would love to touch on now, and I think they're just as appropriate, if not more so, for this episode. Uh, so one of the things is, and I don't believe we hit on this last time, <laughs> unless I completely <laughs> blanked, the opening sequence of the series that we see at the beginning of every episode, I, 
I love it more, more than I can put into words. I think it's such a, a terrific encapsulation, certainly of this animated series, but also just the Superman generally. And, you know, one of the things that really stood out to me, especially now having spent time over the past, you know, year and a half, you know, going through so much of, of what came before, it, it is, to my knowledge, the first live action or animated series uh, featuring Superman without an opening narration. They didn't need to explain anything about the character and i and i think that speaks to probably like two things one you know again the character now has been around for decades so maybe it's it's not yep. needed but also the the imagery is just so striking in that opening sequence and it just taps into that iconography of the superman mythology that that exploding planet and the rocket the kent's finding like all of it is right there they tell the story with the visuals it's i i love it so so much Every time. So I, I'm watching. I know you have those beautiful Blu-rays. I'm watching uh, uh, as a peasant on HBO Max is what I'm doing, you know. Uh, but every time I'm watching them, it gives me the option. Skip intro. And let me tell you, I have never hit that button. Not once. Because, and this is going to sound like blasphemy. Obviously, the John Williams Superman score is top marks. I would tie this. I'm almost, I almost was willing to say that this is my absolute favorite, but I would put them as 1A and 1B for this music. And I think that music combined with the iconography and the, the art style, you're right. It's even if you weren't the biggest Superman fan, and let's be honest here, I'd say that you'd probably have a hard time finding anybody in the world or at least in most parts of the world, who wouldn't at least have some kind of passing familiarity of who Superman is, right? I mean, he's one of the largest cultural figures in our, our global mythos. You get everything you need without a narration. And, you know, that's a tremendous point as well. I'd be really curious to see if this is, in fact, the only intro that we have without a narration, at least from an animated standpoint. I mean, I think you really you really hit a nail on the head. We actually just discussed via messages before too. There's a new animated series coming out uh, next year, or this year now, uh, as we record this, I should say, um, with Jack Quaid, who's awesome, by the way. I don't know if you guys are, are familiar. He's a phenomenal actor. I'm really curious now to see in that intro what they do with that. And uh, this, this conversation has kind of informed my forward thinking as I messaged you with that. But uh, it's really, I think you really hit the nail on the head because at this point in the the '90s, that Superman had already been around for 50 years, right, give or take. 60, yeah. 60. 60 there you go. 60 years. So, uh, I mean, people knew already what they were getting into, and I love that. It's my same feeling of I don't want to see Batman's parents get killed in the alley again and again and again. I don't want to see Aunt May uh, mourn the, the death of Uncle Ben with Peter again and again and again. We get the Krypton stuff, as we talked about, which is great. We're there. It's interesting. But I just like that this intro, you just feel it. You experience it. The music is just stellar. I Everybody should pause this recording right now and take that minute might even be a full minute and just listen to that theme song and tell me that it does not get you hyped. Because it is, uh, it's chef's kiss, so good, so, so good. But yeah, tremendous point about no narration and that. They really show you everything you need to know. Yeah, and you know, look, like yourself, I love that iconic John Williams score. I mean, that's in the the all-time, mm -hmm. you know, Hall of Fame. But, Can't argue that. You know, and, and I, this has come up in the show before, you know, when, when Ken Marion and I have discussed the Zack Snyder movies. I mean, 
you know, that Hans Zimmer score for Man of Steel, when when Clark takes flight for the first time, I mean, that's, mm-hmm. it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. That's why, you know, and, and I'm going to spend more time on the Richard Donner Superman uh, later on this year. And it's like, as much as I love it and I have great appreciation for it, and I understand why it means so much to people, there's, you know, there's there's room for other interpretations. And I think sometimes I I feel some frustration as a fan when it feels like others are so behold, whether it's creators or fans, are so beholden to that one version that it's preventing other other iterations from really having the space that they need. And so, uh, you know, and look like when we talked about the the uh, Ruby Spears cartoon that did utilize utilize a rearranged version of the John Williams score. You know, that was really cool. But I think it would have been a real shame if they had done something similar for this because we would have missed out on on a, a unique, distinct piece of music for Superman. And a, a beautiful one. Yeah, that's the thing with any type of, of fandom. And it, it's so hard when you're so passionate about a, a particular medium or a, even a character in their universe. It's got to be the old improv rule, right? It has to be yes and. You got to make room for other interpretations because that's how you get new, beautiful expansions and versions. And it's how and why these properties grow with us over the years and decades. Yeah, totally. And, you know, so that was one piece that I, I wanted to touch on. Another is, I know we talked about the general style of the show. You know, of course, the, you know, the classic Bruce Tim uh, art style, but also how it took its influence from the Fleischer cartoons. I don't know that we spoke really specifically, though, about the look of Metropolis itself um, and specifically how they differentiated it from uh, Gotham in the, in, you know, in the companion Batman series that was running at the same time. Um, and I've watched, I don't know, maybe you have to, um, like on the old DVDs, they have the, um, uh, you know, behind the scenes features and things like that, where the Bruce Tim and the other producers talked about how they really went for that, you know, that art deco look for Metropolis. So the very, you know, symmetrical geometric shapes, but also how, again, to differentiate it from Gotham, they really aimed for a more futuristic vibe. So it was, again, those elevated railways and elevated yep. highways and the cars, you know, it wasn't like out of the Jetsons, but, you know, they were definitely, um, you know, looked more futuristic than, um, you know, Batman, for example. But do you like the art style generally for for the way the city and, and its, uh, um, you know, inhabitants are rendered? I do. I absolutely, uh, I absolutely love it. It's retro futuristic, right? It's, it's com- combining all those classic elements of Superman by also this kind of like futuristic, more modern, postmodern, even, you know, beyond modern take. And that's also in a way kind of such a beautiful love letter to Superman and Metropolis, right? Because it very much is both of those things. Yeah. Yeah. It's been around so much uh, for so long that it has existed in so many different decades and eras and changes that in a way it is kind of honoring the past, the present and the future of Superman and Metropolis. Now, another thing that I wanted to ask you, uh, and I, I think you're going to know where I'm going as soon as I start to <laughs> start to get this, because I know you're a video game guy. I am. I'm what the kids call elite gamer, 1337, Mountain Dew, what up? I'm sorry. I'll, I'll just, I'll leave now. Anyway, I don't know on. what any of that means, <laughs> but that's fine. I've talked on the show before, you know, as a kid, I played Super Nintendo and PlayStation, and then that was about it. Um, but you know, as a kid, I, I played and loved the death and return of Superman game on super Nintendo, super Nintendo. Yep. Yep. But there, there were also games that utilized the same art style as Superman, the animated series, including what's not the official title, but is commonly referred to as Superman 64, which 
I based on my research is largely <laughs> considered <laughs> the worst. <laughs> Are you familiar with this? Every time you say Superman 64 <laughs> out loud, DC should be like obligated to pay a royalty to everybody who purchased that game, uh, including myself back in the day. Oh boy, yes. So coming out for the Nintendo 64, which is a beloved system, especially for people of our age. Um, and I could go on and on about the Nintendo 64, but this is not the Nintendo 64 podcast. This is the Superman podcast. That game was broken is the best way I could describe it. The game charged you with broken mechanics and basically flying through rings as like a skill around Metropolis. It was bowling shoe ugly to look at. It controlled like you were trying to fly a paper airplane that had lead weights attached to it. The physics were just all completely wonky. It is, it's gotten better in our modern era, but from the 80s to the 90s, there was such a licensing craze where companies would get together and be like, I don't even necessarily care what the game is, but this movie or this comic is hot right now. Let's put these out. Now, before I get absolutely roasted in the comments, yes, there are plenty of good licensed games. There are a few good Batman games as well, too. I believe the Batman Returns game was actually pretty good and held up pretty well. So it, results vary, but I do know that a lot of these licensed properties, uh, especially some of the notorious um, developers like uh, Ocean from back in the day, would put these games out and it would just be, oh boy. They did not put the care and, and love that was needed into a property like that. We're still patiently waiting for a good Superman video game. Everybody up and down thought that the makers of um, uh, the Batman Arkham games, right? Uh, Rocksteady and all of them and all those very, very talented people were going to make a Superman game next. They haven't. Uh, Superman is the villain in the new upcoming Suicide Squad. That doesn't count. You know, they're all uh, taken over by, uh, I don't know if they came out and say that it was Starro, but if it's not Starro, it definitely was very heavily influenced by the last movie. The Justice League is in there. They're corrupt and evil. We're still waiting on a good single player Superman game. And I hope we get it because that game is up there in infamy with one of the most, not only one of the worst games of all time, but the biggest disappointments if that makes sense. I mean, just to take a property like that, especially when, you know, the show is out and it's hot and people of all ages, I'm assuming are getting into it to just put this absolute clunker out is just, I mean, it was just inexcusable. It was a sad, sad day for video games, Anthony, sad day for video games. Well, thank you for breaking that all down. That, that lines up with a little bit of Wikipedia reading that I did. Now there was a, was, cause I know, I, I'm trying to remember. I think I played a ver was it a version of that same game for Game Boy? So usually what would happen, especially in those eras, um, a game would come out either for whatever the main current console was at that time for, let's just say Nintendo, right? If it was the NES, the Super NES, or even to the 64, the Game Boy would usually get a counterpart version of that game, okay. which... Again, results will vary uh, between, you know, Game Boy was a revolutionary one-of-a-kind system, but a lot of times if that care was not put into a Nintendo 64 game, if the same lack of care was put into a Game Boy game, it would be uh, it would be disastrous. Again, Game Boy is a wonderful system. There's a lot of wonderful, wonderful games on there, but 
uh, your the results just just varied. You couldn't get away with some of that stuff now on the grander scale as what was happening in the '90s when we were kids. Gotcha. Okay. Because yeah, I did. Like I said, I did not make it to Nintendo 64, but I did have Game Boy and Game Boy Advance. And I remember playing, I do remember playing that Superman game that was based on the animated series. And um, yeah, I don't have, I don't have particularly vivid memories, but I definitely don't have fond memories of it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a real shame. Now, since you are such a big gamer, do you still have your old systems? I, you know, Anthony, as you know, I'm moving, as you can tell, because I'm coming to you from an empty room uh, from my lawn chair. Uh, everything's packed up for my move. I literally, on my nightstand next to my bed, had a, my Game Boy Advance still. So not only am I current, I have my uh, PS5, my Xbox Series S, my Nintendo Switch, but I also do still have my Game Boy Advance, which was, I mean, that system is just a joy. I'm a big Game Boy fan in, in general. What was cool about the Game Boy Advance is it was really able to emulate those kind of Super Nintendo games for the first time. But, you know, you could take them anywhere. So you could get some really, uh, really cool experiences. So, yeah, I'm definitely not like a, a collector per se. But if I have a system, uh, I hold on to it. I also still have my Nintendo 64. Uh, which is actually, you know, ties that together nicely as well. So if I really am keen on a system, I'll hold on to it. Gotcha. Very, very cool. So one of the other things that uh, has, has been on my mind, especially since, and it's funny how the timing of this worked out, in addition to rewatching Superman the Animated Series, I have also now started my rewatch of Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, and quick plug, uh, the first episode of my rewatch podcast with my wife is available right now on my Patreon page. So I hope that everyone goes and checks that out. But, go, go, go. you know, it, and I don't know how familiar you are with Lois and Clark and the pilot in particular, but the, um, the, the ending scene from that pilot between Superman and Lex tracks very closely with uh, the ending scene between Superman and Lex from The Last Son of Krypton Part 3. And, you know... That's one of the things that over the course of doing this podcast, you know, has really been fascinating is to see the way that these various incarnations, you know, inform in and feed off of one another. And, you know, the, the, the Lex, uh, you know, Superman scene in particular, that's, that's one real crystal clear instance where I have to imagine Bruce Tim and company took some, some measure of inspiration. Are, are you familiar with the scene that I'm talking about from Lois and Clark? Yes, because while I'll admit I have not watched anything past the pilot because my life got, uh, you know, very busy, but you implored me, as did just my coworkers, my friends, everybody watched Lois and Clark. I watched the pilot and like so many of us were just, I loved it. I mean, I thought, I thought it was, uh, I, I thought it was um, Superman and Lois, rather. I thought it was, it was fantastic, but yeah, I, it's interesting, right? Because it's kind of like what we talked about last episode. You want to honor what came before and take influences from, but you don't want to kind of rehash and make a direct copy. So I think kind of finding that middle ground, that compromise between the two, you do get these callbacks where if you are a lifelong fan or you have consumed other media, you could be, oh, okay, I know where this is a direct reference to. And if you haven't seen it, you're still getting a cool moment. So I think it kind of works both ways. And I'm sorry, just to clarify, because we might be talking about two different shows. I was referring to the lowest from the 90s, right? The Lois and Clark, the new oh, Avengers of Superman. So I you're talking about the one I don't like. I thought you immediately that you, I thought immediately you wouldn't bring that up to me, but yes, that's, that's fair. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, I did. I watched some of that because I was forced to by you for our, 
for our, uh, you know, uh, comparing the Superman origins, which was a tremendous project that I'm still really proud of that, that we did together. Um, yeah, I did. It was, a, it was a cool, my, my feelings about that and, uh, and, in good nature jests aside about that show that I like to throw out. I did, yes. And my, my point still stands, I think, with that as well, too. If you can do a nice shout out, uh, especially with a mainstream show, and that's one of the most mainstream Superman shows there's ever been. I mean, I think that's, you know, regardless of my feelings of quality or anything like that, I won't argue that point. I think it's really cool that you can do something like that. And again, if you're a lifelong fan and are familiar with other material, you could be, oh, that's kind of cool. And if not, you still get, you know, an interesting moment that's happening. Yeah, I will say I have to give the edge to Lois and Clark for the Superman Lex interaction for one line in particular, because earlier on in the Lois and Clark pilot, when Clark meets Lex, Lex talks about how he likes being in the tallest building in Metropolis, because if anyone wants to find him or see him, they have to look up. And uh, so we get a nice payoff to that line when Superman pays a visit. And uh, as he's flying away, says to Lex, if you want to find me, just look up. Uh, so I really, really like that. Obviously, the animated series took a different approach where we have Superman just stoically floating and not not taking any of Luther's bait. Um, and the only thing he says is, like, I'll be watching you as he flies off. So very equ- equally effective, just in very different ways. Uh, I, but I guess that takes us to the first episode in... Um, in our in our uh, homework uh, for this uh, for this installment of the mixtapes, sadly, sadly, Lex Luthor, to my knowledge, in the animated series, though, never pays somebody to have snakes attack him. Right? That's not a thing that happens. No, I don't think I don't think that ever made it in. <laughs> <laughs> oof, oof. Anyway, pressing on. But you know, so I have. Um, I don't think I've really announced this yet, but I am planning a, a fairly deep dive multi-episode look at Lex later on this year, probably over the summer. And it'll be a look at the character across time and media, you know, just as we do with Superman, but really, really focusing on Lex because I guess the thing that I'm fascinated by and what sort of my big picture question will be for myself and for my guests when we get into it is, you know, has to do with Lex's motivation because it, you know, it changed, like the character changes a lot, right? We have the, the, the mad scientist and then the, the evil businessman and all of that, but I feel like the motivations change as well. And the reasons for the antagonism towards Superman change. And again, I'll be getting into this a lot more, but you know, it's one thing if, you know, Superman's just kind of in his way. It's another thing if, you know, there's that element of jealousy, you know, that Lex has, has been in the favored position in the city and now he's lost that. Um, I feel like in recent years, we've gotten into more of a philosophical, ideological motivation behind it about the nature of power uh, and all of that. So it's, it's, that's so interesting to me. Um, but, and, and I guess kind of on that note, you know, the last sign of Krypton part three, we talked about parts one and two in our last episode, part three, you know, now we're full fledged in Metropolis, you know, Clark makes his debut as Superman. Uh, he fights John Corbin, who will go on to become Metallo uh, in the in the Luther uh, war suit. And notably, you know, Superman meets both uh, Lois and Lex, um, you know, uh, you know, in this in the series premiere and their reactions to him, I guess, tap into like one of the most fundamental elements of the character and the mythology, you know, when Superman explains to Lois, like, I'm, you know, from another planet, like, and I'm here to help. You know, and Lois is like, well, you sound too good to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Lex too. I mean, Lex, I think, is just confounded by the fact that, you know, he can't buy or intimidate 
Superman. That Superman really is just here to use his power for good, not for personal gain, but just to help. And, you know, look, we've this has come up so many times on the show and it will continue to come up because I think it is really the ultimate core of who Superman is, the fact that he has the powers of a god and he just chooses to use them as a friend. Uh, and I thought that, you know, in, in this animated series very early on, like right off the bat, especially with those two characters, I thought that was represented really nicely. It was. And it sets the table. My um, I didn't love this episode. I felt like, and this is going to almost sound hypocritical because I, I talked about how much I enjoyed the Krypton pieces from this show. I And that's something I'd seen before and we've experienced before countless times as well. But I thought that this episode was just a little more by the numbers in terms of like an introduction to the to Lex and to Clark and to every I thought it was fine. I, I think the most interesting part, at least for me, is that we see John Corbin right from the beginning, and at, right from the beginning, they're they're planting those seeds that are gonna last through the entire run of the show, which again is just I feel like there's a bingo board every time I shout out the Timverse storytelling, you know, or uh, everybody takes a shot as soon as I, I mention that. Don't do that, really. But um, it's just, it's great long-form storytelling. That impressed me. Everything else was just, was kind of by the numbers. Lex in this show, the more episodes that we watch, the more I like Lex. And we'll get into that uh, with one of these episodes here, actually, that we're going to talk about a little down the road. But I thought it was, I mean, I didn't dislike it. I thought it was completely fine, but you know, it's, 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 we've seen this scene before. I feel like I've seen, we, it's, it's, it's something I haven't seen before. Not everything has to astonish me and be a home run. They set the table. It was fine. And that's, that's totally fine. Yeah, no, that, I think that's fair enough. I, you know, one of the things that I definitely noticed more now than I did when I was a kid and that I really do appreciate, and I think was a great choice for the entire series was depowering Superman. I mean, you do, not unlike the Fleischer cartoons, again, another parallel between the two, but, you know, when Superman's uh, saving the, uh, stopping the plane, you know, the, the crash landing with the plane, um, and fighting Corbin in the war suit, I mean, you know, you see him, and, you know, throughout the series as well, you know, you see him struggle. And I think it's- He gets beat up a lot. Yeah. Is it a thought I keeps having as we watch this? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's one of those things, look, again, and I, I re reject this criticism, but I know for a lot of detractors of Superman, it's, oh, he's too powerful, he's boring, it's hard to come up with, uh, you know, threats. But I think if you take his powers down, like, a little bit, he's still, he's still plenty powerful. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, last time we talked about his, uh, his space suit and the ship that he needs to travel in space, you know, that's another, you know, departure from a lot of the comics where he's able to, you know, even if he's holding his breath for an exceptionally long time, you know, he, he's yeah. okay. Um I was like, I thought that worked really well. And I feel like, especially when you're dealing with episodic television, you know, movies, I think you can kind of get away with a, a, a kind of a larger power set for a higher power set for him because, you know, it's not as much, you know, not as much uh, narrative space to fill. But it's like, if you're talking about weekly adventures, sure. you know, you need, sure. you need things that'll be able to challenge him. And I think that, um, that but it, and it also, I feel like it pulls you in, like you're rooting for him. It's like, as he's struggling to, you know, hold up the rails to keep the train from derailing or like whatever it might yeah. be. I, I like that choice a lot. It's almost like it was clever and very well planned to have a strong reoccurring villain with his weakness built into his chest which we'll, we'll get to, which I think is one of the other reasons why I just love that character so much. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. You And again, I think Superman's also at his best when 
he's dealing with things that are as bad or not worse than him receiving physical injury. And that's the people he cares about being in danger, right? That's why uh, point A, why I think that, oh, Superman's too strong. He's too powerful. Doesn't work. That's point A, right? I mean, you're, we're not kids banging the toys together in the sandbox. You know, there's empathy and stakes involved where uh, Lois or Jimmy getting hurt would hurt Superman worse than I think any physical pain that he could go through. And I think that's you know, just from a storytelling perspective, that's one-on-one. But also, yeah, it is. You, you do want to see him not be unstoppable. We want our Superman to be stoppable because guess what? We're all very stoppable. And I think if you just turn his power set down a notch, it makes him even more relatable in a way. I mean, he does get beaten a lot. He gets beaten up a lot in this show uh, for a variety of different reasons. But I, I say that and it sounds like a negative, but I, I, it's a positive, I think, really, because uh, like you said, you, you want to root for him. You want him to be up against the ropes once in a while, you know, to give to have that comeback. Everybody loves a comeback and a struggle. Up against the ropes, you know, you, you bring in a, you know, a, a boxing uh, metaphor and I, I, I'm i really like, yeah, no, nah, I, I, that might have, I think that has a lot to do with why I like that. And also, you know, it shouldn't just be that, you know, he has to be fighting, you know, Zod or Doomsday or Darkseid, you know, to have a tough time physically, you know, and so I think by scaling the powers back a little bit, you know, putting him up against Metallo or Parasite. It's like, okay, like you're really putting him through his paces now. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it ups the stakes and I think it pulls you in and, you know, you're really rooting for him in a more like visceral way than than you might otherwise. So yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was a great choice. And I mean, look, I'm sure, you know, if you're the writers and producers of the show, it's like you, you're thinking about, okay, how am I going to sustain however many mm-hmm. episodes this thing is going to go for? How can we challenge the character? And I, I think that's one way that, and also was not without precedent. I mean, I think they, re- I think Tim really, you know, not just the Fleischer, but just the early, you know, the golden age origins of the character. I think it was really kind of hearkening back to that. And kind of on that note, um, the, you know, not just parallels to Fleischer, but the George Reeves Superman show as well, particularly in the depiction of Clark. And we'll talk about Clark more too, especially when we get to the late Mr. Kent. And also, please don't feel like we have to go episode by episode here. And I, you know, I think there are plenty of instances where we can really kind of cut, a, cut across multiple episodes. And I think that'll serve oh, us really nicely. That's the beauty of it. Yeah. That's, yep, yep. But, you know, one of the things that I loved about the George Reeves Adventures of Superman television series from the 1950s was that, you know, that Clark was a tough, no-nonsense reporter. Mm-hmm. He was not, you know, the the meek, mild, tripping over himself version of the character. And, you know, what you get here is softer than the George Reeves version. And when I talk about George Reeves, I'm really talking in particular about those first two black and white seasons um, before they colorized it and uh, started shooting it in color, I should say. And, um, you know, made it even more kid-friendly. But those first couple of seasons, like, were real, uh, really packed a punch. I think that's why probably we both like the late Mr. Kent so much as well, too. And well, yes, get get more into that. That thematically ties into that very much as well. Yeah. But this, so this is very much a competent Clark. And, you know, again, we saw that in the comics of the 90s as well. Um, so this was very much in keeping with that. Uh, there's one line, though, in particular. I think this was in part two of The Last Son of Krypton. Uh, where Lois finds that Clark has beat her to Luther's event where he's debuting the war suit. And she's like, how'd you get here? And he's like, oh, I just flew. I mean, that's something like right out of the George Reeves show, like that winky sort of comment. 
tongue firmly in cheek, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but so I like that a lot. I mean, it was, it was cool again, just to see how the show has, is kind of like weaving in, uh, you know, these different iterations of the character in, in, in effective ways in ways that I think work uh, really nicely. And so it's going back to Lex for a moment. I, I have to say, this is probably one of, one of truly my favorite versions of Lex. A lot has to do with Clancy Brown's performance. I was just going to say, Clancy Brown, my goodness, what a voice and what an actor, for sure. And I have more to say about Lex, but I want to toss it to you because, you know, you are an actor, a performer, and I know you've done voice work. I guess my general question for you is, what are your thoughts, you know, whether it's, you know, Clancy Brown or Tim Daly or Dana Flint, like anything you want to say about the vocal performances, have at it. And um, and, and specifically, uh, what I kind of really wanted to pick your brain about uh, was was Lex and the Clark Superman dichotomy and any, any things you kind of noticed in terms of how Tim Daly might have differentiated the two characters. Sure. So uh, I think I already said this in the last episode, but, you know, whenever I read a comic book, it's it's Tim Daly's voice that I hear when I see Superman. The same thing with Clancy Brown's uh, Lex Luthor still to this day. He's just just got a, a such a unique voice and gravitas. And I, I think what it comes down to truly is that the writing is so incredibly strong, which is more than half the battle, right? But one of the things that I've come to experience, because I've done all sorts of different kinds of acting over this past, oh goodness, almost 20, 20 plus years now, which is uh, wild. But I always used to just say it's voice acting, it's voice acting. And you know, plenty of professionals I know still call it voice acting, but I've come to realize that it's not, it's just acting. Right. And, and the fact of the matter is that they're putting in performances worthy of any medium, I think, with the, all the nuances and gravitas that uh, I would love to see some behind the scenes recording sessions in the booth, like with different notes, maybe and different interpretations of certain lines and uh, like what comes from them, what comes from a director. I mean, this is the stuff that fascinates me. I would I would truly love to sit there and just see how that whole recording experience works. But they do such a good job. And. I'm actually curious. I'm almost going to throw it back to you with this one being uh, such a huge Smallville fan as well, too, where in Smallville, we have such a uh, intrinsic link between uh, Clark and Lex, right? Here in this show, we don't have that link, right? He shows up. He's already well-established. I'm okay with it because I think Brainiac fills some of that void that would be there otherwise of having somebody who's responsible from the beginning for a lot of what's happening, who he's tied to with his family, even if it's not his Smallville family, it's his Kryptonian family. So that to me kind of fills that gap a little bit for the stakes, um, which is why I really think, you know, I think Brainiac is his main uh, adversary in this show. I know with Darkseid and Lex and everybody else out there, that's definitely uh, uh, an arguable point, but uh, one that I'm still happy to make, certainly. I, I'm perfectly fine with it, but I think also now that, that I reflect back on it, maybe that's why this Lex didn't grab me right away as well too, right? Because he shows up, I've seen it before, you know, he's rich, he's showing a military show. Oh, look, I'm going to help Metropolis. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm just greedy. Um, I like as the show goes on, the instances when they're forced to work together begrudgingly. That's when I find that their dynamic in this show is the strongest, uh, we certainly see that in uh, Target, yeah. right? Uh, and we see that. I love that. And I love that whole line with Lois even being like, no, you know what? Like, 
it's weird what's happening to me, but it's not Lex's style, and I believe him. And Lex is, and I'm jumping ahead in the episodes here, excuse me, but Lex is the one who, who ends up calling Clark and being like, hey, listen, in his own rude way, of course, like, I did follow up. I found the information. And Lex, in his own way, kind of ends up teaming up with Clark and saving the day, right? Even though he's not physically there. But if that phone call doesn't come in, everything goes differently. So I like that begrudging, we have to work together for Metropolis and for the greater good, because that's the only thing I think they have in common now without that uh, Smallville background tied in, right? The only thing that they have for common ground is that they both love in very different ways, I think, uh, to various degrees of healthy and unhealthy, but they both love Metropolis, and that's what I think they're at their most interesting. But how did you feel about it? You know, being such a big Smallville fan, having their their history so entwined and having that separate here. So that's a big question and one that I've not really come to a firm conclusion on yet because I guess I see, not to sit on the fence, but I see value in, in both incarnations. I mean, as you and the audience knows, you know, Smallville was so formative for me. I mean, I did not grow up reading pre-crisis Superman. But in those stories, he had this whole past with Superboy. He blamed Superboy for his baldness. And they had this whole antagonism from, you know, their days in Smallville that carried over. Uh, You know, Smallville, the TV show, of course, put a more realistic, adult, real-world spin on all of it. And since that was so formative for me, I think there is a part of me that is kind of always looking for that. But at the same time, I mean, I did grow up reading the Triangle Era Superman books where they didn't have that backstory. So, you know, again, I guess I, I can appreciate both versions of it. I will say that I'm certainly I'm certainly not opposed to them having a shared past. And, you know, I think, you know, we talk about Smallville a lot, of course, on the show. But I think one of the things that the show did really well for as many things as as they were frustrating about it as a fan one of the things that it really did well was lex's journey and the fact that there wasn't one thing i mean i guess if you had to boil it if you really had to boil it down to one thing was the lack of trust you know clark didn't trust lex with his secret but there were so many things yes they fought over lana but it wasn't just that um you know there there were so many things along the way um you know the favor that lionel luther showed clark that he didn't show lex um i think it really did a great job of showing how they end up on opposite sides and you know it wasn't you know just any one thing it was it was it was complicated uh so i think if we're able to get something kind of like that you know then i'm really on board um Short of that, though, I don't, I don't necessarily need it. Uh, and, and again, looking at something like this in the animated series, I, again, I thought it played really well. I, I think, I, again, the vocal performance really, really goes a long way. But just this, this iteration of Lex who owns the city and there's nothing and no one that he can't control or get access to except superman and you know can't quite figure out why he can't you know you know buy this guy or scare him off and so i think it works i mean i think it's it's a believable dynamic now this version of lex like i said is one of my favorites and i would put him you know when we're talking the 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 evil businessman version of lex i put this one above the the burn era comics i think and again this does go back to the voice but the physicality, the charm, and the menace 
that mm-hmm. combination all swirling together of this Lex. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like you quite have that in the comics. I mean, that was a, a schlubbier Lex, I guess, for lack, <laughs> lack of mm-hmm. a better description. And and like I said, the the menace, I suppose, was there in the comics, but the charm, um, which, you know, not that you see a ton of from from the Clancy brand, but you you know, you see it enough where it's like you could you could understand why he has the city, you know, in the palm of his hand at the beginning of Yeah. This. He wooed Lana, right? Yeah, oh, we gotta talk about that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, but he's a charming son of a gun, you know? Look at yeah, that. So it's like I think it's it's that combination. Um in terms of the 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 visual representation. Uh, of course, the writing and the performance, all of that, again, that physicality, the charm and the menace, that balance, uh, I think really made this very effective. But I, I was, I had the same thought watching the target, right, where where Lois uh, is targeted uh, by this unknown assailant who turns out to be a former Luther Corp employee. And he would go on to become the villain Luminous in, in other Luminous. episodes. Yeah. Yeah, he actually uh, has, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the Justice League episodes down the road, Daydream, he pops up again too, which is again that long form storytelling, check your bingo boards, but that uh, that long form storytelling, which is so cool. So yeah, yeah. I, uh, I thought that was that was kind of neat to kind of look forward and see, oh, they're still, they're still using them. They bring them back around. Yeah, but I had the same thought you did when, you know, you know, Lois suspects Lex and why, you know, why, why wouldn't she? Sure. And, First you know, person you go to. Yeah. And he says like, no, it's not. I mean, and I'm paraphrasing it, but basically like if I wanted to kill you, like, you'd be dead. I don't know if right. it was even quite that, but um, it's like she believes him, but like you as the audience, like you believe him. It's like, no, nah, he, mm-hmm. that's not, he wouldn't do that. Or he wouldn't do it in that way, at least. And like right. you said, he does deliver the critical piece of information to Clark. Um, and I'm with you. I mean, one of my absolute favorite dynamics, whether it's comics or or other media, is when Superman and Lex or Clark and Lex are forced to work together. We know one of my favorite episodes Mm -hmm. of Smallville is Nemesis from season six. And at this point, Clark and Lex are not friends anymore, but they get trapped underground in a, in a cave in and there's kryptonite. So Clark can't, can't get out. And these former friends have to work together. And it's one of my favorite episodes. I love that. Um, During final night, the nineties, you know, comics event when the yep. sun goes out, Lex, you know, it's, you know, when you can put them in that situation, uh, you know, a big Cobra Kai fan. And I, we just watched uh, season four. And I got, I have to catch up. I've only seen the first three seasons, but that, that is the, the surprise show of the, the decade. Uh, you know, it's just, it's what a, what a joy that show is. Yeah. But it's kind of like shades of that. It's like Daniel LaRusso yeah. and Johnny Lawrence yes. put them together, you know, and they have to work together. It's if Clark worked at a car dealership, you know, instead of, uh, the daily planet. Yeah. I, you know, and you mentioned Lana Lang. Let's talk about that episode, my girl, where we meet an adult Lana Lang. She's a successful fashion designer. She's in Metropolis to debut her new line and she's on the arm of Lex Luthor. And I'm jumping ahead in the episode, but you know, uh, later on he sees via binoculars Lana kissing Superman, and I felt for Lex. Yeah, I actually like, felt oh, for man, Lex because like, who's going to be able to compete with Superman, right? Yeah. You feel for Lex. It's that one moment where, like, he is just a human, an exceptional human being, and despicable in other ways, of course, but an exceptional human being. But you, you do feel for him, you know. And then she shows up the next morning and has breakfast with him, like nothing ever <laughs> happened. It's like, yo, know, why are you doing my boy Lex like that? Like, come on, it's just you know, do him dirty like that, poor Lex. What? And poor Mercy, poor Mercy's still hanging out there, never getting any any love or attention, watching the whole thing happen. You know, she's like low key my, my one of my sympathetic favorites now, like we talked about last episode. You know, just watching from the sidelines. Poor Mercy. I know. Poor. Uh, yeah, hundred percent. What was your take on 
that depiction of Lana Lang and the, you know, again, they don't delve too deeply into it, but the fact that there's a romantic entanglement between Lana and Lex, what, what were your thoughts on, on those two pieces? I did not like the characterization of Lana. I thought it was too much. It almost seemed like it was almost a, I don't want to say it's not true to the character because that's that's completely adaptable. It's whatever the writer wants the character to be, right? But we had no prior. This is actually kind of tying into what we talked about before, right? Without Smallville, without seeing even more like at length. We saw a little bit of young Lana there, you know, in the beginning. But without more time there, it was just like Lana's just kind of a jerk. When, when you first meet her, it's like, why would he, why would Clark ever be involved with this person? And I understand it was a long time ago when they were kids. I think we get a little bit of redemption for that at towards the end of that episode and in the late Mr. Kent, where she does that kind of a love that our surprise, uh, surprise save, which is super cool. But so I didn't really like her characterization in the early goings. However, as a, a plot point and a, a setting up kind of that triangle, I thought it was great because it was another way for Lex and Clark to butt heads where it was almost an even more even playing field, if not tilting the advantage to Lex, right? Because even though she knows that he's Superman, objectively, if you're on the street and you see Clark Kent and Lex Luthor, a lot of people are going to gravitate towards Lex Luthor, right? So I thought that was kind of an interesting way to kind of almost flip that power dynamic a little bit for the general public and in this, uh, this kind of situation. It also makes me wonder if the whole time you know, Lana, obviously, very shrewd, very intelligent, very cunning. Was this all just to get Clark's attention from the beginning? I think that's completely a plausible theory to be thrown out there. I, I think there's something to be said for that. You know, I, I can't say I was necessarily put off by this depiction of Lana, but it was definitely, as a kid, even as a kid, and and again now, it definitely took me by surprise. I mean, it is divergent from, mm-hmm. I think, fair to say, basically any other depiction of Lana. I mean, you know, in the mm-hmm. in the Bronze Age in the comics, you know, they had her working in Metropolis at GBS, you know, as a reporter. I guess that would be the closest comparison. But you know, in virtually all other instances, I mean, she's the hometown girl. And what I thought was was like so funny about this was that, you know, typically when you have that juxtaposition between Lois and Lana, Lois is the city girl, right? She's the, you know, um, yes, you know, she's the, she's got the career and she's a little bit, you know, harsher and like rough around the edges and, and, you know, just kind of has that more worldly feel to her. And then Clark and, and then Lana is, you know, the sweet girl next door from the hometown the this version of Lana like really inverts that where Lois seems like pretty tame by comparison. It was it was kind of wild to see that flip. I, I love that point so so much because I think you even put into words uh, something that I was still feeling and couldn't uh, formulate my, my full expression on because that's exactly it, right? We need because there's two sides to Clark, right? Kal-El and Clark, Clark and Superman, however you want to look at it. And it's so important to uh, to have that because you also really get a sense of gravitas, right? Because Lana is such a powerful what if. And this is uh, this is going to sound like a, a, a cheap little Marvel joke on a, a DC-centric podcast, but I promise you it's not. But uh, some of the best comic book stories and some of the best storytelling in general whether it is books whether it is movies whether it's television shows deals with what if 
right? And what could have been. And Lana is that in most you know scenarios. And and we talked about that previously in our Origins podcast, how you and I both have a very big soft spot for, uh, for Lana as well too. It's because he had to make a conscious choice. There, in Clark's mind, I would imagine, as in the mind of all of us readers and viewers, there is a, a universe and a world where he stays in Smallville and he gets married to Lana. But the fact that we don't have that is so powerful because he had to leave that life behind because Superman belongs to the world, right? Mm-hmm. Not just Smallville. He's the world's champion. We all need him, not just Smallville. So that sacrifice and that what if kind of gives such a big gravitas. And I just can't imagine how that decision would be as impactful if Lana was just walking around like a kind of abrasive, corrosive fashion designer. Like it just doesn't click in that way that maybe uh, you and I and many others are used to. Yeah, it's, you know... It's this. It's a, this is a tough one. I, I've wrestled with this with the, the way the cartoon handles Lana because, you know, a lot of incarnations I feel don't really do justice to the character. Like I, I feel a lot of times, especially you know in the in the comics, and I've just come off this huge reading project, you know, last year with, uh, you know, the the early Triangle era, and, you know, she was you know pining for Clark, like he was the girl she left behind, and she ultimately settles you know, effectively for Pete Ross. And, you know, there always seems to be this sense of longing. And so I don't need that or want that for the character. That's why I love Superman and Lois, the the current TV show, because uh, they, at least as of yet, have not taken that approach to the character. But she does still represent Smallville in many ways. And that's, that's the piece of this. Like the fact that she's a successful career woman, like that's awesome. But sure. you're really removing her so so fully from the world of Smallville and and presenting her in this light. Yeah, I do think you lose something. Uh, and I, I, I'm with you. It's like I, I like that idea of her representing this path that he didn't take. I mean, saying within the world of, of Bruce Tim, when we get to the Justice League Unlimited episode, the adaptation of For the Man Who Has Everything, right? Oh, boy. That's, that, that might be my favorite episode of Justice League. Uh, full stop. And what a... What a beautiful episode based on a great loosely based on a great comic as well too don't get me wrong but yeah yeah tremendous episode but it's like he's living on krypton and the woman he's with is this amalgam of yes. lois and lana and Perfect. I, don't, I don't know that that fully tracks with the version of lana they gave us in superman the anime right <laughs> right that's it it just it clashes so much for me when especially when you when you put it in that lens it's almost like they dialed it back and we're like well <laughs> you know they, uh, it was a good choice. Again, that episode for the man who has everything is just what a tremendous Superman story and just a great story in general. But yeah, I, I agree. It's just such a such a, a, a swift departure, you know. And I think it does it does get better as as the series goes on a little bit with her. But yeah, it just was a very very stark and uh, surprising, jarring is the word I would use when she first shows up. You just like that's Lana. Yeah, you know, strutting in on Lex's arm and the way she talks to her other, uh, like the the models and everything as well too. It's very very frank and dismissive and uh, mean almost at times, right? It's it's, it's very jarring. I, I mean, you know, again, I, I I can't speak for the writers. I don't know exactly what the motivation was, but I would imagine that, especially since we had Jonathan and Martha alive, and you know, not not in every episode presence on the show, but regular enough, maybe they felt that that dynamic 
of the hometown was sufficiently represented and they wanted to, you know, do something else with Lana. Like maybe there wouldn't have been, actually in fairness, I mean, maybe there wouldn't have been as much of a, a role for her at all had they not done this. And it is, look, it's a surprise. It's definitely a reversal of what you expect <laughs> Lana sure, Lang to be sure. like. So I'll give them that. The relationship with Lex, you know, it's funny. And audience, if you can correct me on this, please feel free to. But, you know, to my knowledge, other than Smallville, of course, where Lex and Lana would get married, uh, I, I'm not aware of any other instance where we've had a romantic pairing of those two characters. And like going back to what I was saying before of the way that these, uh, you know, depictions sort of feed off of each other. I, I, you know, I can't help but wonder, you know, Superman, the animated series came just a few years before Smallville. I wonder, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's a bit of a stretch to say this one episode, you know, inspired what they would do on Smallville. But, you know, I can't help but wonder if there was some inspiration taken by this pretty unlikely and largely unprecedented pairing between the two characters. There, if I was a betting man, I would say there would almost have to be, right? Because there's no way that you are writing for Smallville and not being a big time Superman fan. I mean, that's one of the things that makes that show so wonderful is that there's an obvious love there that comes from behind the scenes, right? That show is handled with such love and care and interest and honor to the history and what came before. And I really honestly believe there had to have been some intentionality in that, you know, especially it really is just a few years removed from the start of it. When did, when did Smallville debut? 2000, 2001? 2001, yeah. There you go. So only, really, only you know, a few years removed. So I really would be willing to bet that there is some uh, intentionality in those choices. Yeah, I will say I, I did very much enjoy the fact that Lana instantly knew that uh, Superman was actually Clark, and it was I, I did like that. His, yeah. his the fact that he was surprised that it was like <laughs> it was hilarious to me. It's like of course she, of course she knows that it's you. So, I, but I like that. That was a, that was a nice, uh, a, a nice and fitting touch. I felt. It was. It was. And it makes sense, I guess, if you think about it, too, because it might fool people who haven't known him for the majority of his life and spent so much time with him. But when you spend that much time with somebody, you're going to recognize them pretty easily. So, again, that was good logical storytelling, uh, I, th I thought. It made perfect sense, you know? And, you know, like we said, Lana comes back. She makes a little cameo uh, towards the end of The Late Mr. Kent. Yes. The Late Mr. Kent. Uh, it is an episode that, again, it harkens back to the George Reeves show. There was an episode, I believe it was the first episode of season two of, of Adventures of Superman, where uh, Clark is interviewing someone on death row and, you know, it comes to believe that he's actually innocent. And, you know, again, uses his, his superpowers to, uh, to discern this. Um, so that's sort of, our, we have a very similar, you know, jumping off point here. Uh, I mean, this episode, I feel is remarkable in a few respects, it has a very noir vibe to it. You know, we have Love we have it. Superman narrating it. it, which we talked about last time. To my yes. knowledge, only happens a couple of times. It happened in the Absolute yes. Power episode where he meets Jaxer and and uh, Mala again, yep. uh, and and in this one, so we get that narration. Uh, you know, we open on the funeral of you know of who turns out to be Clark Kent, and and then we kind of you know peel back and 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 learn how we got there. What what was your what were your impressions? Because I, I guess I kind of was going into this remembering that it made a big impression on me. Um, so I was kind of I was really dialed into this. But did this kind of take you by surprise, or did you have a similar uh, experience? What was it like for you? You remember, <laughs> and uh, our loyal listeners and viewers probably remember me asking repeatedly in our discussion for the Ruby Spears Superman, "Who is this for?" Right. 
And this is that I bet completely negatively, right? <laughs> when I said that, that same sentiment, though, I mean, completely inverted, flipped, positive for this episode, where this is a Saturday morning cartoon show, and they gave us an adult-worthy, uh, just noir, pulpy, mystery, gritty whodunit, and. I think it's going to be a very, very tough challenge to top this episode as we go forward, at least in kind of my personal lists and ranking that I'm as, I, as I'm watching this. Because this is an episode that, taken by itself, you could show to anybody, and it just tells a succinct, engaging, interesting story that has uh, believable motives, interesting twists and turns. And it is that, you know, who doesn't love a good whodunit mystery and just that that twist of that threat again. How do you put somebody like Superman in danger? Well, we can't kill Superman. You can kill Superman. We both know that. But uh, you can't kill Superman, quote unquote. But we could kill Clark Kent. And what happens then? And that's I think such a great way to put such intense stakes because now it's of course Clark Kent isn't actually dead, but he is. Right, he that part of him is going to be dead if he can't explain how he survived it, and that's just such a beautiful trap to put that character in. I agree with all of that. You know, for anyone who needs a refresher, again, the you know the episode, uh, you know, early on gives us this you know scene where Clark is interviewing a, a man on death row, and and again, Clark comes to believe that he is telling the truth that he didn't commit the murder that he's going to be executed for, and Clark perform some good old-fashioned uh, detective work as a reporter. I, I love my, uh, my my Clark and my Superman showing off his brains. You know that. Yeah. He's, uh, he's, he gets overlooked sometimes, but he's no slouch. This is a great episode for that. He tracks down uh, old uh, digitized pizza receipts that prove that the the, uh, the the criminal, the alleged criminal, the alleged murderer uh, was actually getting a pizza delivered at the time of the murder. Uh, and they were, they were backed up on floppy disks. <laughs> That's it. Those newfangled computers, you know what I mean? They cause everybody troubles. It's probably just a fad that's not going to stick around, you know? So, yeah, you know, it's, you know, we talked last time, and I will probably say this in every episode that we do for this run. This is a very timeless show. I feel like it holds up so well. Yes. Once in a while, <laughs> there's something that reminds you this was the 90s. And so here, you know, Clark goes to the pizzeria. And the guy's like, no, the, you know, the computer system only goes back a few years. Oh, we have backups. And they're on these, on these floppy disks. And while Clark is, you know, in the process of bringing this disk to the, the, the authorities, uh, a car bomb goes off while he's yeah. driving. My, one of my absolute Again, favorite. this is in the Saturday morning cartoon show. Saturday morning way. cartoon it's show. Wild. It's wild to me. I mean, this this episode features two state executions. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. I knew I knew we were going to get there, but yeah, there are two state executions in this children's cartoon show, quote unquote. I mean, that's why how special this show is. It goes to show you they they were just letting them get away with a uh, well, I'd say let them getting away with murder. But that'd be too on the nose there, I think. <laughs> but 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 that's it's, the thing. it's something. I mean, there there are no. You know, this isn't an episode about spectacle. I mean, it's really a, a very human yeah. story. I can't imagine being a five-year-old and watching this episode and being enthralled, but right? The, That's kind of what impressed me about it, you know? 
Like this, I get it. it can work on a lot of different levels, but this really was a, an episode where I feel like they were like, we're we're going to tell a good story, and we hope that our younger audience is going to rise up to meet it instead of just giving a little something for everybody. And I love that. I love that. Well, very well said. And I mean, look, I wasn't five, but I was like ten when I was watching this for the first time. But I, sure. I mean, I remember this made an impression, and I think it probably it was that exact dynamic that you said of of you know the audience kind of rising up to it. I, I mean, I am so grateful that they did an episode like this. I don't know that if you had a Saturday morning kids show now, you would do you would be able to do an episode like this. So, and, and you know, it's funny too. It's like I mean, I guess I was ten. I guess I knew enough. But it's like I'm trying to I'm trying to remember. But it's like what. How much did I even know about the death penalty? <laughs> right. That. Like, I don't know. Right. It's wild. It's completely wild. You know, but I was I was talking to my my good friend uh Will, who used to come in, we used to come together all the time to alternate realities. And I was I was talking about how he'd been watching this and how it's awesome. It still holds up. And I talked to him about I just mentioned that episode. He goes, Oh yeah, that's the one where they like were doing like uh, executions in jail. Right. And I was like, yes. And same thing. It made an impression on him. He knew right away all these years later what I was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's it's crazy. But one of my absolute favorite things uh, about this episode is that, you know, we, we get via narration as Clark is driving before the you know bomb goes off. Why did he drive the evidence in? Why didn't he fly it in as Superman? And I I love this scene for two reasons. One, I think it answers a question that the audience would have. It's like, you know, because yep. again, this episode only works if Clark is is presumed dead. Yeah. Um, and that only happens if, he, you know, he's he's taking this in as, as his, in his civilian identity. So I like that it addresses that. But the, the other more fundamental reason is we, you know, Clark says like, I wanted this to be Clark's victory. And we come at this on the show time and time again, but I, I it's important to me that the the identity of Clark Kent has integrity and that yeah. it's who he is, or at least a part of who he is, that it's not this facade. It's not just a disguise not, that allows him to- It's not a secret identity. Right. Like yeah, it's who it, he it, is. And the fact that he takes yeah. pride in his work as a reporter, he's a great reporter. I, I just, it was so great. But also sort of the, the tragedy of this, it's like, you know, pride before the fall. I don't know. Like he had, he had pride in, in himself as Clark and it ended up causing him a lot of problems. Uh, but I, I love that touch. I love it. It, I, it really he made has that the episode. Great, oh, for sure. And he has that great conversation with um with uh, his parents as well too, right? Where he's like, "If I'm not Clark Kent, he's like, I'm going to go out of my mind." I wanted to. I'm glad you brought up that scene. And I, I I I love that line. It's just in that quick little snapshot, like it kind of like, oh yeah, like I would, I would just be if I were to be Superman, all the time. I would just be so mentally burnt out. And I wouldn't have something to showcase my other abilities and something Superman belongs to the world. Clark Kent is for him. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's such an important, that's why I love that little scene so much. Me too. You know, uh, right before we get back to that scene. So, you know, we, we find out with this, with this car bomb, that detective Bowman who had been introduced in the target episode. Bowman. And, you know, in that episode with Lois, you know, you very quickly get the sense this guy's not on the up and up a little shady. And, you know, ultimately we find out he was the the ultimate murderer and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll figure all that out in a little bit. But, you know, he's the one behind this car bomb and, you know, uh, Clark's car goes into the into the water and there's this, as we find out later, like semi-blind fisherman who sees him go on, sees the car go in, doesn't see anyone come out. So that really puts Clark in this tough spot. 
And so lucky, lucky break with that fisherman in his eyesight, you know? Yes, very much so. But <laughs> it's a lucky break. You know, when we go to the farm, uh, I'm glad you brought up that scene because that was another standout from this episode. And there were a few things that, that really jumped out at me. Uh, one was exactly what you described. And I think that gets at, again, fundamental for me, tenet of the character that he can't just not be Clark. Uh, and uh, you summed it up perfectly, but it was hilarious to me when Martha is getting the news about Clark and she's so nonchalant about it. She's like, oh yes, yeah, yes. the car bomb. Okay. And they're like, I don't think you understand. Oh, like your son. I guess dead. I'm still in shock. <laughs> I, I must still be in shock. Sorry. It's, that was pretty funny. That I thought that was great. I love when Martha gets anything to do, but especially that. Now yeah. I, I will say it was... I don't know that this fully tracked for me. Jonathan, Pa Kent was the one who says like, well, just you just won't be Clark anymore. Yeah. And I mean, on the one hand, part of me is like, yeah, I guess I guess that makes sense for Jonathan. Like he's kind of like nuts and bolts, meat and potatoes. Like, okay, like, you know, it's okay sort of thing. But I, I don't know. I feel like I, I don't he know raised that, that tracks for me. Yeah. He He raised Clark. Yeah, he, he his son is Clark, yeah. so I, I agree with you on that. Like, we're on the surface level, it might track, but yeah, like they, he is Clark. Superman is something else that he does as an obligation, but he he's Clark. He's his son. Yeah. So I, I agree. It's it's kind of a um, and I, I again, who knows? You could look at that one line in a, a million different ways and take it in a million different ways. I'm sure it was just to kind of get that line that I talked about that I loved so much about him going, you know, crazy not being Clark, kind of as a response. But yeah, I mean, you never see Jonathan Kent call his son Superman. Unless he was like faced with him in public, of course, or something like that. But when he's talking to him, he's Clark. It's his son. That's who he raised. Of course he's Clark. Clark can't be dead. He's standing in front of him. No matter what he's wearing, that's his son. Yeah. Uh, you know, ultimately, of course, it works out and, and you know, uh, Superman is able to expose uh, Bowman and, and return as Clark. And we talked about the role that Lana plays. But uh, there was a great scene w between Superman and Lois where, you know, Lois is upset over the apparent death of Clark and, you know, expresses to Superman, you know, the, the respect that she had for Clark, even though she always gave him a hard time. And, I thought that was nice. You know, there are a couple of instances, including in a couple of the episodes that we're talking about now, where, you know, you get at least a hint of romance uh, between Superman and Lois. Um, sure. Even that only goes so far. I mean, if there's one regret that I have about the show, and this I'm, I suspect as a result of it being a Saturday morning show for kids, as much as it was something that could be enjoyed by audiences of all ages, I, I wish that we could have gotten more development on the relationship side. And I know that new cartoon that you mentioned is that's the track that it's planning to take. That's one yep, thing I would have yep. liked to have seen more of if possible on this show. And I, I won't, uh, you know, ruin the ending or future episodes here, but we do get that, but it's, it's a little too late. It's too little too late a little bit in that regard. You know, like we, we do end up getting some of that, but I agree. There could have been more stretched out. So maybe some more like, you know, uh, will they, won't they? And again, I understand we're dealing with 20 minutes in a, you know, an animated form here as well, but it does. It seems like that she's always attracted to Superman, but I did think it was at least, I, I thought at least it was a nice choice instead of having Lois be like, Oh, I never told Clark how I felt and have that mean romantically. Mm -hmm. I thought in many ways for somebody like Lois Lane, 
who is just such a gifted professional and is so driven to say that I really respected him might be just a, a very small notch down from I love you, right? Yeah. Not to give them an out, but I actually thought that was a, a, a nice choice as as well because she's so uh, professionally driven and we see all the teasing and stuff, but you know they, they are in, intrinsically intertwined and we always think of them as romantically entwined and rightfully so, but we also forget that like very much that they're they're colleagues. And you know, having respect for your colleagues is you know the, the highest honor, especially coming from somebody like Lois. So I thought that was still really nice to hear her say, you know, I never told that I, I really respected him. So I, I thought that was a nice touch. I, I agree, and and you know, again, keeping in mind what a lot of the inspiration for this show seemed to be, you know, like the George Reeve show, you know, you didn't have any of that, and you know, it's yep. it's it's interesting. Um, not even with Clark and Lois, but even just Superman and Lois. Um, at the end of the Target episode. Uh, she has that line to Superman, I think it's that episode where she says, you know, it would be nice to see you sometime when, um, you know, when you're I'm not, not in when danger you're not, or yeah, save, yeah. not saving my life. Yeah. Do you remember what his response was to that? Uh, someday. So, right. So there was that. He says someday, which is a nice line, knowing what we know. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's true. Uh, and then the Brave New Metropolis episode, the ending there when he, uh, you know, rescues her from the, the, the parallel yeah. reality and, and she proposes dinner and he says like, oh, getting kind of personal, you know, uh, and it's, it's interesting because again, that kind of like takes me back to the George Reeves version of the character where it's like, he didn't even seem to consider it on that show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I almost like kind of get the same thing here. It's like, yes, he, that you, you know, he cares for her, but it's almost just one of those things. Like I have a higher call and like, this is not, this is not something I'm yeah. pursuing. It's just interesting. Yeah, it is. And, uh, I think in many forms of the character and, uh, the characters, I should say in the world that Lois is such a big part of bringing him, uh, into that world and opening him up more. I mean, Lois is such a big part of his humanity. You know, we always get his humanity from Smallville and rightfully so, but I think Lois is kind of like that final piece Right. Because I, I'm sure that he would otherwise be completely uh, just I don't want to say content because I don't think he'd obviously be content deep down in his heart of hearts. But he does feel such a tremendous obligation to you know the world, to the greater good. But Lois also reminds him that he also deserves to be happy. Lois is such an important part of the character, you know. Lois is the key. And I, I think on that note, uh, maybe it's time to talk about Brave New Metropolis. So, oh boy. you know, yes. this, I think this was one that I wasn't, wasn't so much on my radar for this rewatch. And I was very pleasantly surprised when I got to this one. I was like, oh yeah, like this was yeah. a really good one. And, you know, we begin with Professor Hamilton, you know, tinkering away, you know, trying to <laughs> create a portal using Phantom Zone technology. He's, he's always tinkering away, Professor Hamilton. He's always locked in that yeah. lab tinkering away, you know? Good old Emil. And, you know, so Lois gets sucked through this portal and she ends up in a version of Metropolis where Lois Lane died. Uh, Intergang targeted her. Superman was a split second too late. And in his despair, he became this authoritarian figure teamed up with none other than Lex Luthor. They've instituted a curfew and all these other restrictions. And he's in a, in a pretty badass black suit. He does look pretty slick. I'm not going to lie. You know, and, uh, and, and then of course we, we go from there. I, a lot to say about this. I really appreciated that we did not spend any time 
with Emil and Jimmy and Superman figuring out the portal on our world. I like that we were just in the alternate reality and uh, and then Superman shows up at the very end. We didn't need anything else. I like that. Like I said at the top, you know, definitely shades of DC's Injustice, uh, which I did a whole episode on the animated movie not too long ago. Uh, we talked about you being a big gamer. I take it you've played the Injustice game. I sure have, and I think NetherRealm Studios should be sending royalties to, uh, you know, the, the, all the good folks who worked on the show on the Timverse because, I mean, yeah, this had to have been the direct inspiration, right? I mean, they're just, I mean, granted, we don't get the Joker piece, you know, we, we don't get all of that, but yeah, I mean, other than that, he he's a split second too late to save Lois. He has this kind of dark uh, control, which, you know what? Uh, I'm going to be fair about this. Is what I'm when this episode came out, I really thought it was more impactful now i feel like we're at the point especially with how big injustice has been where we've seen this tale of okay hear me out superman but what if he's not so good anymore it's like i I, i'm over that personally i'm over that i've had my fill of that i still think that being said that this is a fantastic episode i really did enjoy it They, they swung for the fences and tried something radically different which was really really cool i think just how we talked about the influences this show had on smallville and very obviously also uh you know influenced nether realm studios and everybody who made injustice which would then go on to the comics and the animated shows and its own living breathing uh media empire which is great i'm glad those exist don't get me wrong uh but Take it on its own merit. It's still a fantastic episode. I think it's cool that we get to see Jimmy Olsen have something different to do and kind of how he's more hardened and is this kind of resourceful because that's Jimmy Olsen's greatest skill and merit, right? Is that he's resourceful. And uh, I will talk about that more, I'm sure, uh, in a little bit with his episode. But I, uh, that's why I love Jimmy Olsen because Jimmy Olsen is, we all wish we were Superman, right? But in most cases, we're all Jimmy Olsen. Right. And I love that he he it seems like a departure from his character, but not so much so that it's not understandable. We're in this world like he is still resourceful. He still cares about people, obviously. And he's using that as kind of forming this underground resistance that's going on. So I thought that was really cool. This episode did a good job, as so many of them do in such a short amount of time of world building. And making the characters likable, but also believable in their decisions and uh, and outcomes and choices that they're making. I I agree with you, and you know, as as people heard when I did that injustice episode, I mean, I'm, I'm no surprise. I've never played the game, but I was not that taken with the animated adaptation for <laughs> reasons we discussed. But let me say this: generally speaking, I'm not all that interested in stories of these these alt versions of superman as an authoritarian mm-hmm. figure like we talked about what makes the character special right is that he has these powers and he chooses to use them to help that's it so when we kind of twist that and say well what if he used his power in, in this way that's fine and i understand the appeal of those stories but they don't necessarily do much for me however when you look at and i kind of would categorize this along with injustice but also kingdom come you know stories of like what happens if lois dies if lois is killed and you know in particular what where does the character go and i actually 
out of the three, now I'm going to do an episode on Kingdom Come a little bit later on the podcast this year. Love Kingdom Come. We all we all love. We Kingdom all love Kingdom Come. Come. Yeah. I, I mean, I haven't read it probably since the '90s. So, you know, I, I you know I can't say oh I remember every nuance of it. And you know what I'm about to say now, my opinion might change when I revisit it and I do that next episode. So I don't know, but injustice. Brave New Metropolis, Kingdom Come, you know, what happens when Lois is killed? What does that do to Superman? I actually like Brave New Metropolis the best. I really? Think, yeah. Interesting. So with Injustice, the idea that he just completely goes off the deep end. That's my least favorite as well. That's my least favorite out of the three, yeah. yeah. And that's where the animated, and, and yeah. You're not giving Kal-El enough credit. Yes. That that even with this mad tragedy, that that would just that he wouldn't have the constitution and the moral compass, and other people wouldn't rally around him to be like, "This is terrible, but it's going to be okay." I think that's one of my fundamental problems. Right? You're not giving him enough credit to to move on in some form or fashion. And that exactly is where the animated movie lost me because I felt like to a point I was like, okay, like I, I'm actually okay with him killing the Joker in this instance, but yeah, I think we all are. I mean, I get that, that, that part I get, you know, but then he quickly gets to the point where he's beyond redemption. And I felt like, okay, now you've kind of lost me this. I just feel like this is too far beyond my, like my version of the character kingdom come, you know, for lack of a better phrase, maybe gives him too much credit. Like the idea that he, and not that he's okay with Lois's death. I mean, he, you know, re, you know, retreats, you know, from, from public life and from super heroics until he's pulled back in. But I don't know. I mean, I, the brave new metropolis version to me kind of struck the right balance because, and, and you know, what's funny is the, the fact that he's kind of a, you know, uh, certainly tamer than Injustice, right? In in the uh, in sure, Dragon Ball, sure. might be a function of it being a kids' cartoon. But I think the effect is actually really great because it's like he's strayed, but he can still get it back. He's not completely unreasonable in Brave New Metropolis. Even when you first meet him and he's talking, he he, you can tell that like he does want things to be safe. And that he is hurting and he's sad, but he's not completely unreasonable like what happens in Injustice, right? Right. You know, but it does twist him up in a way that I guess you don't necessarily get in Kingdom Come. And look, and I'm not knocking Kingdom Come. And, you know, we got a a sort of an adaptation of it in TV's Crisis on Infinite Earths with the Brandon Routh version of the character. And, you know, same type of thing there. His Lois and and his all of his friends at the Daily Planet were killed, but he he soldiered on and he added the black to the shield to his crest. Um, to show that hope cuts through the darkness. It's uplifting. It's beautiful. But I don't know. I mean, I really think, like I said, this idea that Lois's death would would twist him up at least to an extent um, and, and give us like what we got in Brave New Metropolis, but with the room for redemption. I, I think for me, that's kind of the sweet spot. And like I said, I, I definitely get if people really gravitate more towards that Kingdom Come iteration, the idea that no matter what, he will never break. I get that. But for me, I guess it's, and I've this has come up in other episodes too, but I, I guess the idea that Lois is like that line in the sand for him. Like there's nothing, like mm-hmm. she's, it's a category of one. And I guess John Kent now, if we're talking about, you know, the, uh, sure, the, you know, the, sure. the current comics um, or John and Jordan, if we're talking about Superman and Lois, like his kids. But, yep. but that Lois is that the one thing that like if something happened to her, he's not just going to be able to absorb that. Um, that to me maybe makes him 
I don't know, weaker than the Kingdom Come iteration, I said, but it just makes it more believable and relatable for me. And that's that's fair enough. And I, I like it. Again, I love this episode and I love this interpretation of it. I would still give the nod to Kingdom Come because I, in my perspective, he is he is broken in Kingdom Come, just not in an outwardly way where I guess I kind of relate for it because at times where I've been really hurt or really upset, what I do is I withdraw. Yeah. You know, I withdraw, I go away. I, I like to be hurt in private uh, instead of taking it out on the outside world. And I guess maybe that's why that that struck a chord with me. Um, however, you do make a very a very compelling argument. I think it does it does speak to the strength of this uh, of this show. It, it really does. It speaks to the strength. And I would love an episode where we got to just dial, bring it back, and did a quick check in on what that brave new metropolis looks like. A little down the road yeah for sure so your point is very well taken and i it's funny i was laughing as you were saying it because it's like i I think and i maybe we all do this as superman fans to some degree or another i guess i how do i put this impose some of my own standards or morality or, or whatever as much as i feel like i am inspired by superman but i think Sometimes in terms of what I'm looking for from Superman, I guess maybe I am sometimes looking for like how I would react. And it's like, if I were Superman and something happened to Lois, I'd lose my shit. Like I wouldn't just withdraw. Um, And again, maybe that's not fair to put on the character, but I I think to be honest, that's 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 probably where some of that comes from. And that, that's what we all do, though, right? As as readers and viewers, you know, that, that's what makes us attached to these these characters because it's those universal, relatable themes. Like we're not we're not flying around. We don't come from an alien planet, as far as I know. You know, it's, but we we can relate to these themes, and of course, like that's what makes these stories so immersive. Is that it's not like when 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 you're in uh, which i have a lot of experience as well too as a teacher also too it's not like when you're in school and they're like okay here's the writing prompt like put yourself in this character's shoes we're not actively doing that as intelligent adult readers and viewers but we are subconsciously doing it right and that's what we're doing and i, I think you you what, what you said is you know you you laugh but i think that's 100% accurate i think most of us are doing that whether we know how to articulate it or not you know, it's it's a it's human nature, and it's what makes us invested. If we were reading these stories and we couldn't either consciously or subconsciously strike those feelings and chords about, oh, what would I do in this situation, or how would I handle that situation, we wouldn't be as so inv- as invested as we are to to this media. So there's a lot of truth in that. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah, I I think you know because we've uh, this has come up so many times on the show. Uh, a lot of times I don't bring it up like I'm about to do right now. But you know, with with Superman killing Zod, you know, particularly in Man of Steel, but whether it's the John Byrne comics or or Superman two, uh, <laughs> he lets them fall to their deaths. Anyway, right? You know, I, I think especially in Man of Steel, like I've defended that a lot, and I, I think in part because it's like I. It's what I would have done in that, like if I really were in that exact situation, um, again, I understand the objections that people have to it, but like I said, I think that that might be where some of that comes from. But bringing bringing this back to Brave New Metropolis, uh, you know, ultimately, of course, we find that, um, you know, Lex, you know, he's he's partners with Lex, but Lex is, um, has obviously taken things, you know, uh, beyond what, what Superman is aware of. 
And yep. when he discovers this alternate universe, Lois, he tries to have her killed. And, you know, of course, Superman intervenes. And then that's enough to. You know, Sending poor mercy. Yeah. Sending poor mercy to do the dirty work once again. But, and again, it's like, this is not a Superman beyond redemption. You know, Lois takes him to Jimmy and the other freedom fighters. And, uh, you know, if this were injustice, he would have fried them all in two seconds. But, yeah, you know, right. here we cut away, but then later we find out like, no, he, this, this got through to him and he, you know, has now aligned with them and, he, you know, he ends this episode on a better path. And, uh, yeah, I liked it a lot. I really, um, and I liked the, I liked the costume. I thought that was really cool. So yeah, it was a good looking costume, good looking costume for sure. Yeah. I was, I was a fan of this one. You mentioned Jimmy, right? And of course, Jimmy yes. has this role as the, as the freedom fighter. I, I guess kind of on that note, maybe we can jump to the Superman pal, Superman's pal episode and also kind of tie this in with Metallo and Kryptonite. I think these can all kind yeah. of, uh, all connected. Together. Yeah. One really quick thing that I just want to say before I forget, because I, I, it, it made me laugh when I thought of it. it the Target episode in particular, uh, when uh, Lois and Clark are driving in her car and Luminous or Lightner takes over the, the, and we don't know it's him yet, but you know he takes over the radio and, and you know he's taking control of the car. And Clark you know, like cuts himself out of the seatbelt and he like tears open a hole in the roof of the car and he's saying... And, uh, you know, he ultimately gets thrown from the car. So we don't, we don't get to see how Clark would have saved them necessarily. Right. But it's just one of those things I just felt for him. It's like, you know, what a pain that must be to maintain your secret identity. I mean, you know, generally it's like, all right, you got to keep up appearances and, you know, this and that. But like in a life or death situation, <laughs> you have to like I go would, that far I, out of your way. <laughs> I would have blown my cover. <laughs> Within seconds, Anthony, seconds, I would have blown my cover. You're right, but that that goes to show the kind of uh, kind of person he is, yeah. right? He understands. He's just got okay. I guess got to go fall now. Got to go fall till I'm out of view, and then change into Superman. You know, it's a uh, and Clark deserved that moment. Let's give Clark a win there. You know, Clark should have done something because Clark Clark is resourceful. We do know him to be to be resourceful and capable of his own right. So he would have been able to uh, to make something happen there. I wish we would have would have gotten to see it. I agree with you. Yeah, that would have that would have been cool to see. But, you know, uh, again, talking about Metallo and, and Jimmy and, and Kryptonite, uh, you I know you've spoken about being a fan of now a fan of Metallo generally or a fan of this the animated series version in particular or both. Oh, I don't I don't know of anybody who's a fan of Metallo like generally. And I mean that with all due respect. <laughs> and he's not the most exciting character. But uh, listen, I'm gonna be honest with you. Andy McDowell, Andy McDowell, Andy McDowell. The voice actor oh, who Malcolm? plays in the Malcolm McDowell? Oh, excuse me, Malcolm. Andy McDowell is an actress. That's oh, is there a relation? Are they related? I don't know. I don't. Not that I'm you aware. Should Google of. that actually. That name <laughs> pops up in my head in the '90s too. But yes, Malcolm McDowell, Malcolm McDowell, Malcolm McDowell. There, I evened it back out. Uh, wow, what an actor! What a performance! Talk about a voice that stays in your head in the best way. That gravitas, that snark, but also that pain. I love this version of Metallo. I don't have a whole lot of other experience comic-wise, either before or after. I believe the original version of Metallo was created in the 40s or 50s, and he was wearing like a uh, almost like metallic outfit. I did a quick Google the other day. And I was like, oh, I wonder when Metallo was created. This was obviously a, a reimagining of it. I think it informed how he appears in later subsequent comic uh, versions. And I have to check the timeline on that, of course, but... Um, the acting first and foremost of Malcolm McDowell is what uh, just is such a home run for this character. But I love 
You ever watch the show Black Mirror by any chance? Oh, yes. Love Black Mirror. Okay. So a lot of these episodes, and stick with me here because I'm, we're going into the weeds here and a little, little off-road here, but I've been thinking about Black Mirror while watching Superman the Animated Series. And that is something I never thought I would say, but so many of these episodes have those kind of same themes and just interesting and tragic storytelling. Like the story of Metallo could be something out of a Black Mirror episode, right? A cautionary tale with technology. And it's just, it's such a great, you know, and again, this Lex with the disease and setting him up is all despicable. But as far as he knows, he has this horrible disease. And this is, you know, he's going to be able to cure and not only be cured, but be better, quote unquote, than he's ever been. It's that old monkey's paw, be careful what you wish for. Now he can't taste, he can't feel, he can't feel a kiss. He, he can't taste food. When you first see him, uh, he's eating all the food like a glutton in his jail cell because Lex is still and his influence is still taking care of him. And uh, it's just such beautiful storytelling and it's just such tragic Black Mirror Twilight Zone-esque right? A story of unforeseen consequences that make that character awesome. Also, as a 90s kid, I'm just a sucker for that whole Terminator-esque kind of vibe as well, too. It's why I also kind of love Cyborg Superman, uh, you know, which is, uh, I, I think that look, it just, you're looking at something that should not be, but very much exists. And that just strikes such a primal chord, I think, in me. And uh, I, I love the character, as I mentioned too much earlier in this episode, that the fact that he has kryptonite built into him, it makes him such an instant and immediate threat at all times, which is cool to kind of not even level that playing field, but as he does in this episode with Superman's pal, when he catches him off guard, I mean, it's a wrap. I mean, you know, if it's it's not a level playing field at all, if you can catch him by surprise. And, you know, he, Mattel is a, a very smart man. I mean, you know, certainly pained and driven to psychosis and immoral, but he's an intelligent person as well too. So it's just a, such an awesome threat for the, for the character. And uh, I, I, I love one of my favorite characters. I put him only behind Brainiac, I think, but to uh, as far as my favorite villains from the show. And uh, I, I know that might sound outrageous, but again, I really hope folks are, are you know watching these mixtapes along with us. But really, you know, just when you hear the performance and the whole storyline in that context, it's just again a word we use a lot on our bingo board for this show is timeless, right? I think this is just such a, a great tragic timeless story they put together here. I I so appreciate your passion for <laughs> for this iteration of of Metallo. I. I don't know that I I quite meet you with the same level of of enthusiasm, but I'm I'm close, and even more so after after hearing you lay all of that out. It's funny because as a kid watching it, and then like I said last time, I rewatched it in like late high school or college. The Metallo episodes were some of my least favorites, and there are actually there's at least one Metallo episode that I didn't even put on any of our lists, the, the action figure episode. Uh, but. Upon rewatch, I've definitely come around on on Metallo generally, but specifically this version. And uh, the, the 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 voice actor definitely goes a long way towards that. But I appreciated, like you said before, planting the seeds for this. You know, having Corbin be part of uh, the series Love premiere that. and then bring him back. Yeah. You know, it's reminiscent to me of uh, an animated series that came later than this, The Spectacular Spider Man. Did you watch that? Not at any great length. I've seen every episode of um, the the '90s run on Fox of the sure. animated show. Um, but I have now. 
Help me out here. There is a version of the animated show where Neil Patrick Harris does the voice of Peter Parker. Is that the Spectacular Spider-Man or no? No. No. So which one is this? Which one is this? So I know the one you're talking about. The, the Neil Patrick Harris one was like set in the continuity of the Sam Raimi movies and was like an MTV show. Got it. Got it. Got uh, it. Got it. This was Greg Weissman who did Gargoyles. Oh, love Gargoyles. Um, and this came out, I don't, I don't have the years offhand, but maybe like 2010 or like somewhere around there. Only ran two seasons. It is probably, and I, Spider-Man is my favorite Marvel character and one of my favorite comic characters in general. And this cartoon is like probably my favorite iteration of Spider-Man. And there are some wow. people who are listening to this who are right there with me. And the others probably just haven't watched it yet. It's so good. And one of the things that I always loved about it was how it made full use of the vast Spider-Man supporting cast and would, you know, would, would you know, bring characters in and kind of, you know, it would be a slow burn, right? Like they would, they would not be at the forefront, but then they would mm -hmm. come into play. They did such a masterful job of that. And that's kind of what the, the Corbin bit uh, reminded me of. But what won me over more than anything else, and this was, I guess, what was kind of lost on me as a kid, but now as an adult, I'm like, oh my God, exactly what you just said, this idea of not being able to, to feel, to smell, to taste. Uh, I guess like watching it the first time, I, I didn't think about what that would be like. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. But I did mm -hmm. now, and it's like it, it, the the tragedy of it, and then you know, compounded by the fact that Lex, like you said, was you know responsible for his affliction in the first place, oh, that motivated boy. him yeah. to undergo this procedure. I mean, it's you know, it it really is tragic. And then, like we said before, you know, this is a, a character who generally, but even more so with a depowered Superman, you know, is able to go toe to toe with that Kryptonite. So yeah. I, I really did come around on on Metallo, and the reason I even had. Um, the way of all flesh on this list is for Lex's role in that, but it, it's a it's a great spotlight on John Corbin. I wish that the description for Superman's pal did not mention Metallo because otherwise, I think it would actually would have been a cool little surprise that he pops up yeah. in that episode. Tina in the beginning of the episode. I just like metal. Some nice nice foreshadowing uh, happening there, right at the very beginning. I agree. I would have been a, a much nicer surprise. But even the title of the episode, what a nice callback that is, huh? The Superman's pal. I thought that talk about you know honoring what came before. Even just titling the episode that I thought was a very nice touch. Yeah. Now I know I just sang the, the praises of Metal. I guess you know what though. I was going to go in a negative direction. But I'm going to spin it back to a positive. I actually like the way Metallo is used in Superman's pal is fitting. Like, I think one of the problems I have with Metallo and maybe some of the lesser Superman villains is that, you know, once you tell their introductory story and, and, you know, you kind of get the gist of the character, uh, you know, you kind of play that card. Some characters are very rich and you can keep going back to and you do different things with, uh, or a different spin on the same thing. And others, it's sort of like, okay, been there, done that. And it might be hard to really like build a whole episode around Metallo. I know you feel differently. Are you probably fine with that? But. No, but, uh, but I, I can, I can, I appreciate the positivity here, uh, especially when we turn this into the Metallo podcast, um, <laughs> you know, we'll call it heavy metal, maybe. I don't yeah. know. We'll see. Um, <laughs> but that's why but, like, I think the way he's used in Superman's pal is, is perfect. Sure. And you know, this, it's something that I've always said about the superhero movies. Um, like I know, uh, I know the amazing Spider-Man two with Andrew Garfield was not well received. I know that's changed a bit now after no way home. I think people have been reevaluating the Garfield movies, but I love the way they used Rhino in that movie. The like, yes, he doesn't, that need was, to, um, Paul Giamatti. 
Oh, Giamatti, right, crazy. I love that. And that and also, I know you're not a gamer, but that directly also informed the incredible um, Spider-Man Insomniac games, uh, PlayStation games is too, because that version of the Rhino is the same thing. It's more of that mechanical mech suit, you know, uh, which is, again, cool to see how these these bold choices do end up having ripples and effect going forward, which is cool. I like what you're saying. And I think you mean it because you liked it that they used Metallo more sparingly, mm-hmm. which I still – I don't have a problem with. But I also like it because I think how you keep bringing Metallo back is – I agree. Once that initial horror, that body horror story that happens with Metallo, you bring him back because you show that he's also intelligent and cunning, right? That he is able to lurk in the shadows, formulate this plan – and then use his powers to strike. If he was just like a rhino, so to speak, rampaging through the town, you'd be like, okay, we can't do another whole episode about this. We've seen that. But if you can be like, okay, he is pretty cunning. Maybe not quite on a Lex Luthor level, but is obviously a very intelligent man who has a lot of hate in his kryptonite heart. And as long as you could do that and then bring him in to be like surprise or put – him, I put Superman in situations where he's going to be blindsided because, like I like I said, if if he can blindside Superman and it's not a fair fight, at ten out of ten times it's going Metallo's way, right? And I think that's where the danger lies, not in a head to head confrontation, but if he can kind of uh, pull the strings and then hit him when he least expects it, he's in some Superman's in some real trouble there. Well said, and I think that's one of the advantages of this version of the character because I'm not a Metallo expert, but you know, th- this is a far more intelligent and 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 cunning iteration of the character than than you typically get. So I think you know there's there's room to do that with the, the animated series version. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I really came around on Metallo. I love the way he was used in Superman's Pal. I love that Jimmy got the spotlight. Um, yes. You know, much that can be said about Jimmy, he's gone through, you know, generally speaking, tends to fulfill the same role, um, the same function and and the same dynamic, uh, no matter what we're talking about with some variation. But, you know, I I thought this was a pretty, you know, classic, effective depiction of Jimmy Olsen on the series, you know, as as a whole. Uh, A minor nitpick, I could have done without the mullet, the mullet look. Uh, I, you know, uh, keep, keep, keep the mullet. Every, every single Jimmy Olsen, make it an edict, DC. Every single version has to have the mullet. No, it's, it's funny because I was going to say that was of an era, but even like by the time the show was coming out, it was probably a little too late even for that, right? That's, <laughs> you know, that's the right. thing. It's like, and I'm all for, and you know, like Ken Marion, I talked about before, you know, and as an artist, like we, he and I have talked about this. I mean, he's all for, you know, like really updating Jimmy with like, you know, like tattoos and like an earring, like yeah, there are sure. all sorts of things you can do. So it's like, yeah, the mullet felt, I think felt dated even then. I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's not my favorite visual representation of the character, but I like, again, the role that he serves. You know, one of my favorite things in that episode is when, um, you know, because Jimmy's interviewed on the news and they take his answers about his relationship with Superman, like wildly out of context. And it, oh, it's that old, uh, it's that old Simpsons gag when they're interviewing Homer and yeah. they, they, uh, I don't know if you're a Simpsons fan at all, but they, they cut the, uh, the, the whole news case to, to make him sound absolutely horrible. And you can see the clocks moving at different times <laughs> behind him. Like as they're editing, it's just, I, that tickled me very much when I saw that in this episode. Exactly. So, you know, it creates this impression that he has this close relationship with Superman. And then of course that, that makes him a target of, of admiration of people asking for favors of enemies. Um, there's this great moment where, you know, Superman intervenes right in their talk. And he says to Jimmy, he's like, you gotta, like, you gotta clear this up. 
but the like the Tim Daly delivery was great. It just felt uh, I, I don't know. I just like Clark felt like or Superman felt like uh, I don't know, like a regular guy. The way he's like, you got to clear this up. I yeah. like that small moment. I, I got I get such a, a big uh, a big brother vibe from their relationship in this show, which I think is just spot on perfect. How I, uh, my, my ideal rela- envision of their relationship is kind of that uh, big brother, little brother, you know, ki- kind of scenario. And uh, I, I like Jimmy. Who doesn't like Jimmy Olsen? I mean, really, like I said, he's, we, we all want to be Superman, but in reality more often than not, we're Jimmy Olsen, right? We, we have nothing but our, our resourcefulness. A lot of times we don't have good luck. Things don't go our way, but we have, uh, we rely on our friends who we think are super, even if they don't always know it, and they inspire us and they bring us up. And I think that's kind of the beauty of Jimmy Olsen. I, I, I love him as a, a supporting cast member, and uh, they do a great job uh, in, in, this, in this show as well. It's a, this was, I think, the funniest episode that I've seen so far. There are some parts that actually got some good chuckles. When he's in the park and the guy's talking about how he wants Superman to come to his birthday party, and he's like, you know, a lesser man would be, you know, put off by that. And just Jimmy starts just running away. And he's just in a full suit, just running next to him, still talking. That got a good little chuckle out of me. I thought that was funny. Yeah, it was it was a humorous one for sure. Um, yeah. I mean, generally speaking, yes, I, I am a fan of of Jimmy. I, and the, the like the little brother role, I think, is probably the most classic and most common uh, version. I kind of I'm OK with them being more contemporaries. And being more peers and friends as opposed to like the big brother, little, like, I don't know that there's as much, I feel like you have a little bit more you can do when there's more of that, like genuine friendship, you know, and they're, they're like, and Clark and Jimmy are buddies as opposed to Jimmy being like the little brother, always looking up to him sort of thing. But I don't dislike this. Uh, I I just, uh, I, I don't know in my ideal scenario, I don't know that I would necessarily pick this but i like it and i think it worked well and this was a fun episode and you know the fact we, that jimmy's able to save him is in a very nice touch we we split the difference and what you want is you want it to start off like this and have them grow and evolve into contemporaries right like that's that's the happy medium that's what we want here right because yeah. we want to see jimmy olsen just blossom and grow to heights where he is very much an equal and maybe even some way clark's better you know how he's always helping Clark and Superman out of jams as well, too. Again, using his resourcefulness, which is something that I, I admire about the character. You know, it's interesting you say that. Yeah, I mean, and maybe that's maybe that's part of my hang-up where it's like, well, if I have to have him as the little brother, like the way any of these things work, it's like that's all he'll ever be. But in an ideal scenario, you would have that evolution. I mean, you know, one of the instances where we sort of got the other end of that, I don't know if you watched it, but with the Supergirl TV show where he was James uh, and he was a very accomplished photographer and went on to run Catco and all of that. Uh, you know, unfortunately due to the fact that Superman appeared very only sparingly on the Supergirl show, we got very little interaction between them, but you know, that's something that um, like that dynamic, I, I would be cool to see more of. Yeah, uh, I agree. I agree. I still want to talk a little more about, about kryptonite. Cause you know, we talked about it, you know, uh, certainly as far as it's, it's role in, in, in creating Metallo, but as far as the supporting cast generally on this show, right. Our, our the main thrust of, of this episode that we're doing here, very classic. I mean, and again, going back to the George Reeves show or the movies, I mean, it's, it's Perry, 
you know, Perry unfortunately doesn't get a spotlight. I was, episode. I was waiting. I thought that's what you were going with this because you know I have one bone to pick based on our previous talks and previous episodes, and that's that's my bone to pick. Where's where's my good Perry White stuff? Where is my great Caesar's ghost? That is such a wonderful character that in these hands, I wish had that time to shine. Yeah, I'm, look, I'm always I'm always for more Perry White. You know, this came up when when Rich Roney and I did our. Uh, Adventures of Superman episodes uh, a while back, but in the Adventures of Superman TV show, it's a throwaway line in one episode. But they say that Perry was the former mayor of Metropolis, and I, to my knowledge, I don't know that that's ever been followed up on or played up on anywhere else. But like, there's a lot you can do with Perry White. You know, he here he fulfills a very traditional, uh, you know, role of the gruff editor of, of the paper. But you know, it, it certainly works. But you know, again, not unlike again, a, a lot of the really classic uh, incarnations of, of the mythology. It's it's Lois, it's Perry, it's Jimmy, Lex. Um, the Kents, which again, a very nice um, carryover yep. from the 90s comics. The Kents are, are a presence there. And again, very similar to Lois and Clark, the new adventures of Superman, where he's on the phone with them or he's visiting them on the farm and he's getting that advice. Were there any supporting characters who um, who, who didn't get any play or didn't get much play other than Perry uh, that you would have liked to have seen or seen more of on the show? Oh, we, we've already talked about it, but I would have loved to have seen more Lana. Uh, maybe, you know, I just, uh, maybe just not in, I, I wish there was some way to kind of bridge that gap from where we leave her uh, very early on. And I believe it's the, the second episode, right? Uh, Last Son of Krypton part two, where we see her to then seeing her in her uh, present, in, uh, incarnation in Metropolis. I wish there was more that could have been done in between that. Like, oh, maybe she comes to visit Clark or maybe Clark does go back to Smallville. Maybe we did, and this is, I'm talking to my target audience here with this one, but maybe we did need a little more of Smallville here and there in this show to kind of bring some more of those other characters to to life. We really don't see much or any of Pete Ross in the show, do we? Just in, right? uh, I think it's in the... I think it's in the second episode where we spend right. time with Clark, right? Where uh, he overhears, you know, one of their classmates inviting Pete over and Lana's like, oh, that yeah. tart. That, I think that was, I think that was it as far as Pete. Yeah. Uh, really? I, so, uh, which again, you, you can't have everybody, especially when they're, you know, essentially 20 minute episodes. I get that. But uh, I would have liked to have seen some more storytelling and long form storytelling done with, uh, with Lana is, is what I would like to have seen. Uh, you know, I, I would be with you on that. And to be honest, I feel like, I don't know. I don't know. It's tough because the way they played it, it's a surprise to Clark and to the audience when he she shows up as that fashion designer. Because what, and there's, maybe there's some value to that. But what I was going to say is maybe there could have been an episode that came before where you see her leave Smallville to, yeah. you, know, you know, embark on a new endeavor and then you catch up with her down the line and she's accomplished all this stuff. Yeah, I think something like that would have been cool. I mean, look, like you said, you know, any any more time in Smallville, I would always welcome. Yeah, that was a layup for you, um, I know. But, <laughs> you know, again, I don't know how much you need it on this show per se, but I certainly wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't object to it. Um, I'm trying to think, I mean, I, I, for what this show was, I mean, I, I think they used the characters that, that made sense in this world. I, I can't say I have like, oh, a huge, I guess... I'm trying to think here. I got another one for I, you too. 
Oh, okay. You go first because I'm still. This is still percolating. So yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. So you knew because uh, based on our, our previous talks about kind of like you know, the Superman origins and uh, the early days, how much I, I like and enjoy Perry White. I would have loved to have seen another episode in the same vein or style of the late Mister Kent, but focusing on kind of maybe Clark and Perry doing some like hard boiled detective investigating together. Maybe we get a little bit into Perry's past. Maybe something, you know, has popped up in Metropolis. And again, a great way to show the talents of Clark Kent and how he's even still learning how to use his mind and his investigative abilities from uh, Perry, I think would have been awesome. Yeah. Yeah, no, that I, that would have been really cool. Uh, you know, I mean, I guess the, like the characters who come to mind are the characters from the Triangle era of the comics that are so beloved to me. Uh, I mean, Sawyer and Turpin are here and we're going to talk about them, especially when we get more into the, you know, the, the new I God love, stuff. So they're there. You love know, Turpin. I mean, there are other characters who I think maybe could have rounded out the Daily Planet bullpen a little bit, like a Ron Troop or a Cat Grant. I don't know how much you need them per se. And honestly, the Angela Chen character, I think basically fulfilled the Cat Grant role more or yeah, less. We never, we never get, we never get any Cat Grant, do we? I don't believe so, no. Right, right. Um, you know, this... This, I guess, the the rest of my wish list probably would uh, I should say for when we talk about the the DCU team ups or the villains, but you know it would have been cool. You know they bring in John Henry Irons and he becomes Steel, and we'll talk about that in yep. one of our upcoming episodes. Love that. Uh, you know, as a fan of the '90s Superman and and the Death and Return, like it would have been really cool to see them do Eradicator or Cyborg Superman or you know yes. anything yes. like that. I mean, we would eventually get Doomsday or version of Doomsday on Justice League Unlimited, but. I guess if if some of those elements from the, the comics that I grew up reading had been incorporated into the show, it would have been cool. It would have, I guess, that would have dated it a little bit. I mean, I think they were really striving for, you know, the the classic incarnation. Although they did bring in, you know, they created new characters like Livewire. So, you know, there was yeah, a mix yeah. there. Pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm going to say this with all due respect to one of your other prominent guests who is awesome and I know loves Lobo very, very, very much. <laughs> If you look at the totality of the show, we spend a lot of time on Lobo. Like Lobo gets two episodes, right? I would have liked to have seen some more of that time spread out and maybe go to one of those other characters is what I was thinking. Because if there's a character, we think of timeless, right? I don't, if you're a kid from the nineties, like we are, we all love, have some affinity, even how big or small be for the character of Lobo. I'm the same way because we grew up with that. But if you came before or became after, I'm willing to bet that you probably don't have that same affinity for Lobo, right? And I think if it's and there's no way to know this, right? There's no this is me armchair quarterbacking. Hindsight is 2020. It's the the biggest cliche in the world, but it's true. But I just you, you want so much of the show is timeless, and that time ended up being so precious because we only get three seasons. That when you see episodes that are maybe multi-part on a particular topic a part of me is always like ah, but what if we just gave some of this time to this character or that character so it's interesting to see how how everything played out i also thought it was interesting lobo makes the intro too from the yeah. very beginning right mm -hmm. which i thought was uh, this is a very much a that's how it kind of gets this little 90s watermark on it to me right because lobo is always presented as this huge deal uh, in the show, he gets top billing in, in the very first episode. He's in the the intro, right? So I, th I found that to be very interesting as well. Yeah, no, very true. I'll With be getting all... I'll be getting a message from Justin. I'm sure after he listens to this, <laughs> Justin, 
I, I, I think you're awesome. I like listening to you. I think Lobo is great. He is the main man. Don't get me wrong. But I'm speaking, uh, trying to remove my bias as a 90s kid. I feel like if you if you weren't in that era, it might be, I mean, is there's not a Lobo ongoing now, is there? No. I know they did that one revamp where he was like very skinny and uh, people were very, very unhappy about that a bunch of years ago. But other than that, it's just, I, I can't really think of anything. Maybe it's time and the right creators to bring Lobo back. Maybe it is time to do something like that. But it's, it, it struck out to me as a, or stuck out rather to me as something that wasn't as timeless as something as, uh, as a lot of this other show ended up being. Yeah, no, very true. Uh, you know, the, I guess the last episode that we really haven't touched on much yet is a little piece of home, which introduces kryptonite. Uh, it's in this museum exhibit and, um, you know, Superman stumbles upon it when he's stopping, a, 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 a robbery and, uh, you know, Lex clocks this and, you know, uses it to, uh, you know, in, uh, in his mind, hopefully, you know, keep Superman at bay. But of course, Superman, you know, won't back down. And we, we get that battle with the robotic T-Rex, uh, from, again, from the opening sequence and Lois is there to help him just like, you know, Jimmy helps him later with Metallo, you know, Lois is there to help yep. him with that. Very nice. That instantly reminded me of, uh, the Batman, the animated series too, right? Because I always think of the Batman, uh, the Batcave in that show with the, the T-Rex in there as well too. And just seeing the T-Rex come to life in this, I don't know if that was an intentional nod or a subconscious nod, but it pinged something in my brain that I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Well, I think I, I was, you know, I don't know, it was IMDB trivia or something. I think there was an intention or, you know, a thought on the part of the, of the producers to tie that in somehow, but you know, they didn't, cool. but I, I think that was at least part of it. But, uh, you know, again, just like with Brainiac, you know, and of course this is true regardless of which telling of Superman we're talking about, but the tragedy that is like this, you know, remnant of the world, he came from the world he lost is lethal to him. Uh, I, I always love the scene where, you know, he, Lois has the little sliver of kryptonite and she shows it to Clark and he, you know, reacts to it and she just thinks he's sick and she orders him soup yeah. and meat. And They're in stuff. the diner. Yeah. Right, very right, nice. Right, right, yeah. I know. I always like that. But, and again, another, you know, another classic Superman Lex scene, you know, where, uh, you know, Le like Lex has something on him. And again, to kind of tie this all full circle, this, you know, this version of Lex, because we've had versions of Lex where he's in the green war suit and they're fighting and it's, you know, he meets him on a physical level to some extent. But, you know, here, you know, we got in the 90s in the comics and what we see represented here, um, I think is really fascinating because it challenges Superman in a different way. Uh, even going back to the last Son of Krypton part three, when Superman's hovering outside the window and Lex is like, I don't know how much you heard about my machinations with the war, sh war suit. He's like, but I know what you can prove, which is nothing. And even the Ruby Spears cartoon, the, f the first episode yeah. ended that same way where it's like, you have nothing on me that you can prove. And so it's just, you know, challenging the character in a different way. You know, kryptonite adds a different layer to it where it's like now there is actually a physical barrier, which I don't know how you, how do you feel about that? Do you, is it, does it work or does it take something away from the, the ultimate dynamic? I, my, my idealized and preferred version of Lex Luthor is when he's smart enough to know that he can't meet Superman on a physical level and instead uses his gift in the arena where he is far superior to almost everybody on the planet, right? With his intelligence, his resources, and his commitment. Uh, that's the version of Lex that I like. I think there's a strong argument to be made that Kryptonite is an extension of that, and I'm okay with that, right? Because like he had to deduce and realize that this is affecting him this way. It's from Krypton. 
So that is kind of an extension of his intelligence. I prefer that over the war suit. Yes. <laughs> because I just don't understand like why he would put the war suit on instead of just running away and living to fight another day and just painstakingly make a new plan for when he least expected it. That's just, again, that's just my version. Every interpretation is valid, but that's just my, my, my preferred version of Lex. Well, I like, you know, what you said about it being an extension. And it's like with the ring, it, it's that extension of the idea that you Superman can't touch him. And now mm-hmm. it's more literal, but, you know, still really kind of plays into that. So, uh, yeah, I, I like that. I mean, you know, by the end of this episode, Superman has all of the kryptonite. So, you know, again, obviously it'll, you know, Lex will get his hands on it again, but. Uh, you know, it, I guess they, my point is they didn't go in the direction of him with the kryptonite ring right off the bat, like we got in the comics and, and everything. But I know, um, they do play with that later, right? Especially in Justice League. Am I remembering that right? Yeah. yeah. Yep. 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 Well, we've just about hit two hours and I we think we've covered all of the episodes that were on our list. Is there anything else that you wanted to say about Metropolis and the supporting cast before we part? One of the greatest supporting casts in comic book history. It gets overshadowed, I think, by a supporting cast of Batman, of Spider-Man. I think those are the two big immediate ones that comic book fans think of as like, wow. I think this is right up there with them. They might not be as flashy or as, uh, you know, as splashy, but I think the supporting cast as fully rounded characters and believable characters that help not only create the world, but inform who Clark is. I think there's, you're not going to find better, better characters who do that in all of comic books or, or their adaptations. Well said. Well, thank you for joining me for another one of these mixtapes. Two down, three to go. Uh, we will be back in one week for part three or volume three of Superman, the animated mixtapes. I hope you will join us in one week for that. And until then, remember, it's about what you do. It's about action. <laughs>